1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? How do you feel when you come back from holiday and you open the work emails and you see that you have, I don't know, 50, 100, a few hundred to read through? I wonder what's your technique for getting through them. Try different things at different times. I, I used to follow the approach of just trying to read, especially on those long conversations back and forth, just the final email and try and grasp what was going on in that. Of course, it doesn't usually work, does it? Because <laughs> unless you follow the flow of a discussion, the conclusions that have come in that final email don't always make sense. So you have to read everything. You have to work through it all. Because only then can you understand uh, what's happened, not just reading one side. And as we come to the book of 1 Corinthians, particularly to begin in chapter 7, it can feel a little bit like that. Because the first six chapters of Corinthians, Paul has been addressing different things that he wants the church in Corinth to know and to think about and to put into practice. They're, they're his concerns based on things he's heard about the church. But as we come into chapter 7. If you notice at the start of verse 1, Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about. 
And so prior to this letter, the Corinthians have written a letter to Paul and given him this long list of questions, it seems, of different issues and matters where they would like to hear the apostle, God's appointed apostle and leader, God's instrument, his instruction about how they should think about these things. But of course, we don't have their questions, do we? We do sometimes. Sometimes Paul addresses them. Uh, but other times we don't. Uh, we just have Paul's response. We have to think a bit about the situation, what the questions might be behind that. But it's not quite the same as with the work emails. Because we can understand what God would want us to know in having what we have in 1 Corinthians. God's word is sufficient, isn't it? We don't need something else to put the pieces together to profit from the scriptures. We have what we need here. And the reason it's okay is because what Paul is doing in answering all these questions is he is teaching principles for the Christian life in his response to the questions that are raised. So we have to do everything, but we do need to see how is Paul addressing these different issues using biblical principle applied into specific circumstances. So whilst our situations that we face will be different, and probably sometimes the questions we ask might be different, As we approach these chapters, we're going to seek to learn the principles that Paul applies and see that as we recognize those principles, God is revealing his truth to us, such that as our situations might be different and our questions might be different, we apply God's word consistently through. Now, over um, the last few weeks, um, I think twice, James has taken us through chapter 7. He's addressed... uh, Uh, Three weeks ago, uh, picked up the subject of sexual intimacy and marriage. Two weeks ago, picked up the topic of singleness. And for the next two weeks, we're going to have two sermons that are connected. We're going to look this week at marriage. And then next week, we'll think about divorce and remarriage. Those are all subjects that Paul is addressing here in chapter 7. I thought we might do that in one sermon But then as I started to think about it, I thought, no, there's a bit too much here for one sermon. So at the minute, I'm committing to two, and we'll see how we go. But our big point this evening is, and the big thing we're going to see as we work through these verses and and a few others in chapter 7, is that God's plan for marriage is it should be a permanent relationship. The permanence of marriage is what particularly Paul drives home to us here in these verses. Now, that was an incredibly countercultural message. Back in Paul's day, it was countercultural because in Corinth, divorce did not need grounds. You could just both mutually agree as husband and wife that you were divorced, and that was fine. You were divorced. In fact, there were some situations where just one party could declare the marriage void, and the marriage was over. So for Paul to teach about the permanence of marriage was countercultural. And it was countercultural in Paul's day. And of course, it's countercultural in our day as well, isn't it? Because we live in days when marriage is being redefined or has been redefined by some. We live in ways where, days when marriage is certainly being undermined. And we live in days, sadly, when divorce is getting easier and easier and easier. And that should trouble us. It should trouble us. Whether we're married or we're not married, 
because this uh, is crucial for the functioning of our society and, as we'll see, uh, for the glory of God. Marriage is about the glory of God. But but what do we mean uh, as we think about marriage? What is marriage? Now, you know, 30 years ago, I would not have had to have asked that question (laughs) because that was generally accepted. But actually, we live in days where people's definition of marriage is very different according to who you might speak to. And here's a definition of marriage that comes from this book, uh, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, by a man called Jim Neuheiser, who was our pastor in the States, Naomi and I, And it's a very helpful book, as I've read it so far, because Jim highlights this definition for marriage. He says, marriage is the lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman, established under God and before the community. Once more, marriage is the lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman, established under God and before the community. And this evening, particularly, we're going to focus on how marriage is a lifelong covenant. Now, where does Paul teach us in these verses? We're going to see how Paul teaches us in these verses. We're not quite at those points yet, um, so if you just hold on on those in a minute. We're going to see where Paul teaches this in uh, 1 Corinthians, and we're going to see that, first of all, uh, Paul teaches in verse 10 and 11, if you look down there, that we should not seek a divorce in general. Look there at verse 10 and 11. Paul says, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. We'll come and explain that in a moment. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. So, some of the Corinthians, we seems, thought that the body was not significant, the physical body wasn't significant, or it was less important. And so they saw the marriage relationship as in some ways ungodly, or perhaps better avoided, uh, or even ended. And so in verse 10, uh, we read of wives who are separating from their husbands. Now, the, the Greek word behind that phrase, separate, is, is divorce. So wives who are divorcing their husbands. And then Paul uses a different word in verse 11, which is why it's translated that way at the end of the verse. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, you might wonder, uh, what does Paul mean uh, when he says what he says in brackets, middle of verse 10? Not I, but the Lord's. And if you look down again at verse 12, he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now, some people look at this and say, well, well, is this just Paul's opinion? And elsewhere, um, in some cases, it's God's instruction. That's not how we should understand this. I think what's going on here is very simple. In, In verse 10 and 11, Paul is reminding him with that phrase, not I, but the Lord, that that principle that we should Uh, Not divorce in general is something Jesus taught. Christ taught that very clearly, teaching the permanence of marriage. He says, do not seek a divorce in general. So Paul clearly teaches here, do not follow the culture and seek to end your marriage in that sense. But then also, and here we move down to verses 12 and 13, he says, do not divorce if you are married to an unbeliever and they are willing to live with you. So what's the situation here? Well, in verses 12 and 13, the situation is that someone comes to faith after they have entered into a marriage covenant. They're now a Christian, they're married to an unbeliever, and the question is, should they divorce? 
What's their reasoning? Or maybe their reasoning is that, well, my spouse is not a Christian. I am a Christian. Does it mean that I should therefore divorce for all the reasons why it would be not right to marry an unbeliever? Does that mean I should do that? And here, Paul says, uh, I, not the Lord, verse 12, to indicate that Jesus didn't pick up this situation specifically, but now God teaches about this situation to us in verse 12. It has the same authority, but he's just phrasing it that way. And what is Paul's answer? Well, it's very clear. That if your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay with you, you should stay. You are not contracting to a new marriage having become a Christian. You should remain faithful, not breaking that existing promise. So Paul is clear that you should not seek to end your marriage. Why? Because it is a lifelong covenant. Now, next week, we will see that elsewhere in this chapter, Paul teaches that divorce is permitted for the Christian, but not commanded as a response to sin against you. If you want to know more about that, we're going to need to pick it up next week. But Jesus teaches that sexual immorality is a valid grounds for divorce. And Paul here teaches that desertion is also a grounds for divorce. But unless that has happened, you must not, Paul is saying here, end your marriage. And indeed... If you look down there at verses 14, 15, and 16, Paul says that good can come from being remain, remaining married. And so verse 14, Paul says that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified through the believing spouse. Now, now what is Paul saying there? Well, I think what Paul is saying there is this word sanctified has this sense of being brought near to the things of God. It was a phrase used of different elements that were used in the temple that were brought near to the things of God in that sense. So it is not that the, un, that the non-Christian spouse becomes a Christian savingly, but they are brought near to the things of God. They're exposed to God's truth, and in that sense, they are sanctified. And I think that's the way we should understand the statement about children at the end of verse 14. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. In a similar way, they are brought near to God and his truth, not savingly so, but in their exposure to the things of God. And then, if you look at verse 16, uh, Paul says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? That by God's grace, you will come to share the gospel with them and they will come to saving faith. And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul, Paul says, God may use you to save your spouse, but... Putting all of that together, the foundation of what Paul is teaching here is the idea that marriage is lasting and lifelong. Now, I said, what we're going to think about this, we need to step back and consider what are the principles Paul is teaching. And there are three things I'd like to highlight, and this is where we come to the first slide. Three principles to recognize that lie behind Paul's instructions. The first is this, that marriage is a lifelong commitment. Marriage is a lifelong commitment. When Naomi and I had the privilege of helping a, a couple prepare for marriage, one of the things I'm really keen to emphasize is you get to choose who you marry. That's a choice. But if you say, I do, 
in those legal declarations. And if you say, I will, to those promises you make before those gathered and before the Lord, you are making a commitment to lifelong faithfulness. There are no trial periods when it comes to marriage. There's no cooling off period where you can just maybe see how it goes and then make another opinion about it. That's not how it works. That's why in the marriage service we hear these words. It is not to be undertaken carelessly, lightly, or selfishly, but reverently, responsively, and after serious thought. It's a lifelong commitment. And so it's wrong to think that you can quickly or painlessly end it. And here, Paul is clearly teaching that even coming to faith does not cancel that previous covenant commitment that you have made in marriage. Now, that principle of marriage being a lifelong commitment is not a new idea. It is God's intention and purpose when he designed marriage, which, of course, he did when he made the first man and the first woman. And if you jump back in your Bibles, keeping your hand in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you jump back to Genesis chapter 2, foundational verses speaking to us about the marriage covenant, what do we read in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24? Describing what happens in marriage, you read this, Genesis 2, 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. God's word teaches that we leave, we are united in one flesh. A family unit is left in that sense, and a new one is made. The key point for us to grasp in what God's word teaches here is that sticking to your commitments and your promises is God's desire. So you are not remaining faithful just for the sake of the children. You're not remaining faithful to your commitment, not just because it's financially beneficial to do so. Not just while you are in love, as you feel it. Or not just whilst you want to be faithful to it. God wants you to be faithful. He commands you to do that. Now, after the fall, God makes provision for divorce. And that is a sad permission due to sinners living in a sinful world. But that is not, as we see in Genesis 2, God's original design. And so that is why, as we come to the book of Malachi, chapter 2 and verse 6, some Versions translate the words there, I hate divorce, is what the Lord says. What's being communicated there is that God's original design in creation was for that lifelong commitment. Provision and permission is given for divorce in certain circumstances. But that is a sad permission due to sinners living in a sinful world. But we need to see, friends, that marriage is a lifelong commitment. So can I just say then, friends, if you are married... Remember what you have promised and keep planning that that commitment will be a lifelong commitment. I would encourage you to make it a habit to attend as many wedding services as possible. It's a public event. You don't have to come to the reception and try and, you know, squeeze in for the good food. You can just go to the service. That is a good thing. Do you know why? Because you will hear the promises made by the bride and groom again. It is a good thing because you will sit under the ministry of God's word as it pertains to marriage. 
that will be a good thing for your marriage to do so. And don't just do that. Don't just attend a service and, and listen and, and remember the promises that you made. Invest in your marriage. You know, I'm sure any of us who were to rent a house would look after it. But if you own that house and you intend to own it to be, you might say, your forever home. Theology to one side, but your forever home. You'll invest in that home, won't you? You'll put hours into it. You'll decorate it. You'll think about how you can use it better. And similarly, friends, we should invest and care for our marriages. We should be praying for God's help. We should be daily helping, asking God to help us to continue to be intentional in fulfilling our lifelong commitments. And we need to encourage one another to invest in our marriages. We need friendships outside of marriage. Please do not pull the drawbridge up, as they say sometimes, and never have friendships outside the marriage covenant. Do do that. Pursue friendships with the same sex outside of the marriage covenant in that sense. But friends, if you see a friend drifting in their marriage, speak to them about that. Be a good thing to do so. It will encourage them to that lifelong commitment. Because marriage is, we've seen firstly, a lifelong commitment. And secondly, the second principle that undergirds this is that marriage is not just lifelong. Marriage is an exclusive commitment. Now, as we think about this uh, problem of separating and divorcing, we can separate in practice from our spouse without a divorce. And and that is a particular danger in our day, that we we remain married as far as people understand, but we no longer live in that exclusive faithfulness as a married couple. And as we think of that, I just want to encourage you all to remember our vows if married. I had the privilege of attending a marriage service yesterday, and it reminded me of the vows that are there. Both husband and wife are asked, will you love them? Comfort them, honor and protect them, and forsaking all others, be faithful to them as long as you both shall live. And they both promise to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish with God's help and in accordance with his word, till death us do part. Those are solemn vows. Those are serious promises. And they reflect that our Lord Jesus Christ taught in Matthew chapter 19 that marriage is an exclusive commitment. Matthew chapter 19, if you want to turn, verses 3 to 6, we read these words. Some Pharisees came to test him, that's Jesus, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Have you not read, he replied, that at, the beginning, the crea- the, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, how does Jesus press this home? Words that are used in the marriage service. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one Separate. 
Those words apply to the couple in the marriage and to everyone else around that couple as well. What God has joined together, let no one separate. So friends, God's word calls us in this exclusive commitment to exclusive faithfulness in all aspects. That means that we are committed to sexual faithfulness in marriage, in our actions, in our thoughts, and in our words, in what you look at with your eyes, in what you touch with your hands, in the words and the tone that you use with others. Pursue faithfulness. Do not be flirtatious. Someone has helpfully summarized it like this, to say that every other man or woman is off limits for you in all ways sexually. And that is how you must think. And that's because the physical union that exists within the marriage covenant is a picture of the very depth of the marriage bond. So sexual sins are serious because they damage that deep connection that is there in the marriage. So pursue, be specific about sexual faithfulness. But it means more than that. It also means we pursue emotional faithfulness, not allowing another person, whether male or female, to be closer to you than your spouse. And we give thanks for for friendships, particularly friendships with the same sex. But even there, we should be careful not to be closer to someone other than our spouses. As we think about family bonds, the scriptures are really clear in Genesis 2 that, that we leave a family unit and we form a new family unit. Now, you can misunderstand that in a way that I think I did when I first got married, which is that I'm completely separate from, my old, from the family I left. And that's not true. <laughs> that's not right. But you can't have the same depth of connection with your parents that you had before you were married. So that's not that you cut them off, but you shouldn't be emotionally closer to your parents than you are to your spouse. And also, it calls us to spiritual faithfulness, that you seek to be spiritually closer with your spouse than you are with anyone else. Sexual faithfulness, emotional faithfulness, spiritual faithfulness in that sense. Friends, as we think about marriage, maybe this is a helpful picture. Your marriage is not like a church roof. Yesterday in the, the church in uh, Birmingham, uh, occasionally I was looking up at this wonderfully beautiful roof. I was at the back of the room, paying full attention, but occasionally looking up at the roof. And uh, it was... Uh, an amazing structure. Had these huge trusses and had these ties that went across in, uh, I guess, made out of iron or something else. And you think, well, that roof, it was designed, I don't know how long ago, 100 plus years ago, I imagine. It was built 100 plus years ago. And apart from the occasional bit of maintenance, once it's designed and built and put in place, that's it really, isn't it? It's there. And you can just kind of leave it, and it stays. <laughs> Your marriage is not like a church roof in that sense. Once it's in place, it doesn't need attention. Your marriage is like a garden. 
And we well know that if we leave our gardens, the weeds grow up. The flowers do not flourish. And the grass grows to look like a swamp. It takes time and effort to keep your marriage strong. Now, now we all know that life has seasons and, and time and capacity can vary at different times. But your commitment to marriage should be as strong as the day you said, I do and I will. So how further can we protect our marriage? Well, Jim helpfully in his book here talks about seven ways we can protect our marriage. He says, don't take one another for granted. Make your walk with the Lord your highest priority. Remain involved in a strong and healthy church. Quickly and completely resolve conflict. Be honest with each other. Be circumspect in your dealings with the opposite sex. And be gracious to one another. Invest in your marriage. I don't know about you, but when you hear that and you think of that, you think, well, that's hard. (laughs) That's complicated. And in light of that, some hear that and think, well, why not just live together? It's cheaper. It's simpler. It's far less messy when it doesn't work out. It removes the stress of a wedding reception, a wedding service, and a honeymoon. And one of the sad patterns in our culture is that many young adults are turning from marriage and Also, many older widows are opting for cohabitation with new partners without marriage. So why should we pursue it? Why is it a good thing? Well, here comes our third point. And it is that marriage can be a God-glorifying commitment. Our third point. Marriage is a God-glorifying commitment. Now, as James explained two weeks ago, some are given the gift of celibacy in their character. So they are able to live in a state of singleness without a sin struggle. And we need to be really clear, as Paul is here, that 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 is a God-given calling and it is no way less than marriage. It can be used by God in wonderful ways. But God's creation pattern and design also is good. It is a God-glorifying commitment. Right back in creation, Adam and Eve were were commanded to fill the earth and subdue it. We call that the creation mandate, and that mandate remains. We still call to fill the earth and subdue it, and that means that that, that marriage is therefore God's ordinary plan if we are not given the gift of celibacy in character so that we can live in that state of singleness. So we are called to glorify God and enjoy him in our marriages. It is a god glorifying commitment. And here I want to point out a number of ways in which we glorify God through marriage. First is this, that God is glorified as we pursue his pattern of marriage. God is glorified as we pursue his pattern of marriage. Now, as I've been speaking, and if you know this chapter, we didn't read it, but if you know this chapter in 1 Corinthians 7, you might be wondering about verses 26 to 27. If you have a Bible, just turn with me to it. Because there in those verses, Paul seems to suggest it may be better not to marry. Let's look down at 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 25, where we read, Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. 
Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you from this. Now, what does Paul mean there? Well, the key thing to recognize there are his words at the start of verse 26, where Paul says, because of the present crisis. So Paul is saying that those instructions there in those verses tell us there is something in the immediate situation that meant that marriage was probably, was, was, it was better not to pursue marriage in that context, in the immediate situation. But he's not teaching an ongoing principle that singleness is better than marriage. Remember, as we saw last week, singleness can be a calling if we have the gift of celibacy. We can therefore live in that state of singleness. And marriage is a legitimate calling if God has called us to that. Now, what is maybe going on? Well, what is the present crisis? Well, we're not exactly sure. It could be persecution. And you can imagine that the threat of lions is one thing to face if you are single and you're called to deny the Lord, knowing that you uh, don't have any other commitments in that sense. But the threat of lions, if you don't deny the Lord, if you are married and have children, well, that's a bigger thing to think about, isn't it? Maybe the present crisis is the mess that's going on in the Corinthian church. We've seen divisions. We've seen immorality. We've seen general confusion. We're not exactly sure what it is. But we do know that Paul is responding to a specific situation. Now, there could be times in the future when it's wise to make that similar temporary judgment. That might be how we apply the principle that Paul is teaching there. But Paul is not saying that it's always better not to marry. So what should we do if we're not gifted for celibacy? Well, the Lord calls us to grow in godliness. To seek to be the kind of person, the kind of person you would want to marry, would want to marry. To observe godly marriages intentionally pursue time and meet with people who are good examples that you might learn for them. To pursue that pattern of marriage, not because it's everything, but because it's a good thing. So God is glorified as we pursue his pattern of marriage. But then also, God is glorified as we pursue his pattern for marriage. His pattern of marriage and his pattern for marriage. So when we embrace this lifelong commitment to faithfulness and embrace the roles that God has given us within marriage, that brings glory to God. God has created us and fitted us as male and female for the roles that we have within marriage. So men are fitted to be husbands and fathers and are therefore called in the scriptures to willing, sacrificial headship. Now, that means leadership in the marriage and leadership in the family. Now, in Ephesians 5, verse 23, Paul there speaks of the husband as head in that sense, and that word head means sacrificial leader. 
it doesn't mean sacrificial source. We, we know that because Paul uses the very same word of Christ when he speaks of Christ as head of the church. So in Ephesians 1, verse 22, if you want to go and check it, and Ephesians 4 and verse 15, we have a reference to Christ as head of the church. And Christ is the sacrificial leader of the church in that sense. And so we learn what it means to be the husband to be head and to exercise headship as we look to Christ and see how he does that. So men are fitted to be husbands and fathers, and women are fitted to be wives and mothers, and are therefore called in the scriptures to willing submission to their own husbands and to be helpers to them. Now our culture hears that of God's model for marriage and says that's oppressive. But friends, if God is a designer, if God has made us and has made us to, to serve in those roles within marriage, then it's not oppressive, is it? It's God's good way. This is what God has designed us to be if we are called to marriage in that sense. And if that's the case, then living according to my role within marriage is not dependent upon my spouse fulfilling their role. Now, we need to be really clear here. Submission does not extend to being sinned against or being asked to sin. But it's not about their worthiness for the role, but rather we submit for the Lord's sake and then lead for the Lord's sake. And we recognize that that we can glorify God even if my spouse is unwilling to follow biblical patterns. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, where there are instructions there to wives in the situation where an unbelieving husband is picked up. And God is clear through Peter that we glorify God even if our spouse is unwilling to follow biblical patterns. So fulfilling God's pattern for marriage brings glory to God because we serve and we live according to how God has called us and fitted us. God is glorified in that. But and also, God is glorified in marriage because that blesses us personally. Lifelong faithfulness, a lifelong pursuit of that exclusive commitment is a challenge. But doing so helps our sanctification. I came across a great quote in one of the commendations of Jim's book this week that said that a Christian marriage also involves two funerals. In what way? Well, both parties die to self daily in their marriage together. Discipline, the discipline of selflessness and grace that marriage demands of us is good for us. So God is glorified as marriage blesses us personally, but also God is glorified as marriage blesses us collectively, both as churches and uh, cultures. Churches need strong marriages. Stable societies are grounded upon strong marriages. And this is one of the reasons why the redefinition of marriage and the devaluing of marriage was so very serious. It's not, we must not think it doesn't affect us because we're going to live differently. It does affect us because we live in the world. God is glorified as marriage blesses us collectively. It leads to strong marriages 
and strong churches and a stable society. But then lastly, and we close with this, God is glorified as marriage pictures the gospel. That loving, lifelong, faithful commitment in marriage pictures a greater marriage between the groom, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the groom, and between the bride, the bride, who is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that human relationship of marriage uniquely showcases the gospel to our worlds. And so, friends, that means, and this is so important, that marriage is about something bigger than any one of us. It's not about me. It's not about you in that sense. It's not about my needs and my desires and my preferences and my fulfillments. It's not about my plans and my ideas. We have to always turn from that selfish view of marriage. What's going on? God has established something from creation to show forth the glory of his salvation. And our faithfulness to our covenant commitments in marriage pictures God's faithfulness to his covenant to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's bigger. It's so much bigger. And so then, friends, let us, with God's help, be faithful in our marriages. Maybe you need to go home this evening if you're married and come before the Lord and confess and repent and seek his help to change somewhere. And we need to speak to your spouse and confess and repent and ask for their help to change. But it's not just that. We need to support each other in our marriages because as we follow God's good and wise ways, we bring glory to God. Marriage can be a God-glorifying commitment.